This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reaney with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. This edition of Jazz Beat features the interview I conducted with Anat Cohen in 2008 when she was the Billy Taylor Artist-in-Residence at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Over the course of an hour-long conversation, Cohen discusses her upbringing in a musical family from Tel Aviv. Her brothers Yuval and Avi Shai are also great jazz players who are now based in New York. The passion she developed for Brazilian music when she was a student at Berkeley 20 years ago and played extensively with Brazilian musicians in eastern Massachusetts. The influence of Sidney Bechet, Louis Armstrong, and John Coltrane on her playing and repertoire. And about the growth of jazz in Israel and her prominence among the profusion of jazz musicians who have immigrated from Israel to the U.S. over the past two decades. The interview includes excerpts of Anat's music, Since it was taped a decade ago, her career has continued to flourish through international touring and the release of several critically acclaimed albums. Her latest is a duo performance with pianist Fred Hirsch, in which they play this Duke Ellington Billy Strayhorn standard, Isfahan. I'm Tom Reaney, host of Jazz on the Mode here on WFCR. It's a pleasure this afternoon to welcome Anat Cohen, who is here at the University of Massachusetts this week as the Billy Taylor Artist-in-Residence and is appearing on Friday, November 7th in the Jazz on the Mode series at the University of Massachusetts. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here today, Anat. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been here for a few days? I've been here. This is uh, my second day. Second day. It's been, uh, I've been having a great time. I got to meet some students at uh, UMass, and uh, I just came here from uh, G, for CCG. GCC. GCC. Greenfield Community Greenfield College. Greenfield Community College. Yeah. And, uh, and um, it's been uh, really nice to share some of my experience and my thoughts and my views about music and have uh, the students interacting and asking questions, and it's been Really nice. Now, you are a native of Tel Aviv, is that right? Yes, I was born in Tel Aviv, Mm -hmm. grew up there, and when I was about 20, I went to study in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I am still in the States Mm -hmm. uh, a few 
few years later. Now you, uh, however, come from a what I presume is a very musical family back home. Your brothers Yuval and Avishai are uh, fine musicians in their own rights, uh, making music with you occasionally. And uh, tell me a little bit about your family background. Was there music in it? There's always been music in it, definitely. My parents love music. The radio was always on. There's always something playing. Um, they, I don't know how it happened that uh, three siblings in, from Israel end up being three jazz musicians. Um, Avishai and I live in New York. Yuval lives in Tel Aviv. So obviously we don't meet that often. But when we do meet, we always, the first thing we do is we grab our horns and we play. Um, because when we were kids, that's what we did. There was, of course, some neighbors and games and other things we did beside music, but music pretty much filled up all our, our time, um, from junior high school for the arts and high school for the arts and conservatory after school. And my parents were always there supporting, never forced us to do anything we don't want to do. But I think since we were the three of us in it, and it was such a nice social thing to do, we had other friends playing. We really, we really loved it, and we, I guess, we, we stuck with it. So there was a lot of encouragement from your parents. Now, where did the jazz uh, enter the picture? Here, were your parents jazz uh, lovers, or was there uh, a jazz in the culture of um, of Israel? Did you hear it in the streets? Definitely not. It's not the most popular music in Israel now, but there were some um, re- really good musicians in Israel. Some of them, when we were kids, were already musicians that went to study abroad and came back and brought the spirit to Israel, uh, some very passionate teachers, and some people um, that you know, came there. There was this guy from New York, Walter Blanding Jr., that came there and stayed there a few years. That was after, actually, after I moved to um, to United States, and um, one of the my mentors and the main figure that was there was Arnie Lawrence, that came to Israel and brought his his beautiful spirit um, to jazz and spread it. His love to music, his love to people, just spread it all around and told people that music is beyond notes; it's about spirit and beauty. Now, Arnie came to uh, Israel from uh, from New York with with a bit of a mission. Did you say? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, he, he had a little political m- mission. He wanted to, through music, connect the, 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 the Israelis and the Arabs to play together. I, I, I'm assuming he, he did do that uh, to a certain extent. I was already living in the United States when he managed to, to really go, go for it all the way. He made a center for music in Jerusalem, and he got people to play, and they traveled, and they played in the occupied territories. They played in Israel. They played out of Israel, outside of Israel. But... um beyond whoever played just just any you know he would just collect like 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 the semi messiah he would just walk with his <laughs> stick and around israel and just point at people and gather them and every wednesday we would used to go to go up to jerusalem and didn't matter who was there what kind of instruments if we had drums there was no bass there was a piano guitar he just managed to make a musical evening out of anything with his his view and the way he he makes music so it was an incredible experience mm-hmm. arnie's son uh, eric um, uh, lives in southern vermont uh, it's one of his homes and is someone we've gotten to know and hear uh, play a good deal in recent years and when arnie passed a year or two ago uh, we were in touch with uh, eric around that time um 
You're reminding me, too, of uh, Walter Blanding. I remember Walter talking about uh, his time there. Refresh my memory a little bit more about uh, Walter, who's the tenor saxophonist, uh, works with Wynton Marsalis, among others. Yeah, he's been playing with, uh, with uh, the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra for years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what he did uh, before. I mean, I know some friends that know him from the LaGuardia High School. In the, he's, a, he's a New Yorker, mm-hmm. and he, he's a beautiful person. Again, what, what students need, you know, beyond understanding notes is to get the spirit of jazz, the spirit of listening, the spirit of communicating and actually managing to have a conversation through music. And, you know, it's nice to have people that go and they spread the spirit rather than say, okay, these are the chords, these are the notes you're supposed to play, and, and that's it, go for it. It's nice when you have people that talk about communicating. Now, spirit is something that uh, seems uh, you um, uh, have a very effusive spirit as a player and as a uh, as a performer. I've had the pleasure of seeing you in concert a few times, and um, and there's certainly a lot of spirit coming off the bandstand. And um, I thought uh, at this moment we would um, take a, a minute or two to listen to a selection from your recent recording called "Notes from the Village." I'm, is this a global village that you're referring to here? Is this Greenwich Village? Is it a kind of combination of the two? Yeah, it's all of them. It's all the, the small villages around the world. It's Greenwich Village. It's the global village. It's any, any village. And the opening selection on this is Washington Square Park. Uh, how representative is this tune of what you would call, like, your vision? It's it's pretty representative, although it's... it's uh, it's Washington Square Park. The tune is is a journey, and it's uh, I wrote it after spending quite a bit of time in Washington Square Park. And when you go there in the weekends, you see people get together and they make music, all different kinds of music, and anything anything goes really. And you can travel in and in and out of world different worlds just in that little park. And that's kind of little symbol of. New York City when you can travel in and out of different worlds in New York City and that's also the story of my life that so far I've been I, I've been fortunate to travel to different places in the world and absorb some of different some different cultures that got inside the music that I write so I guess it is representative Mm-hmm. Well, let's take uh, a couple of minutes now to listen to um, uh, some of this Anat Cohen composition Washington Square Park recording Washington Square Park from this uh, Anzac Records release called Notes from the Village. Um, there we hear you playing soprano saxophone, which is one of the woodwinds you play. Um, 
Uh, you're quite renowned for your clarinet playing, but um, what, uh, what came first? The clarinet was first, then I picked up the tenor saxophone, and one day as I was uh, jogging with listening to John Coltrane playing Big Nick, um, mm -hmm. I was, you know, he was playing soprano, and I had this decision that said I gotta start playing soprano, so the soprano was last. Was that the first time you'd heard Big Nick? Well, no, but okay. it's the first time it occurred to me how beautiful the saxophone, the soprano saxophone is, and how much I want to try to go for it. Mm. That's a beautiful, um, beautiful tune with um, uh, commemorating Big Nick Nicholas, a great tenor saxophone player, but uh, curious that Train played soprano on that when he recorded it uh, back in the 60s. We'll hear some of John Coltrane's music in a few minutes, but... Um, um, let me ask you, too, about this group, which um, seems to be a pretty consistent uh, band, and uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the players on the band. Uh, on the, the recording? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we have, um, on the recording, we have Jason Lindner, um, a wonderful piano player, a true New Yorker, born and raised in New York. Um, Jason Lindner on piano, Omer Avital, an Israeli bass player, um, that also has been doing a lot of work in New York, and Daniel Friedman, another native New Yorker, <laughs> born and raised <laughs> in Soho. So, you know, so Jason, Omer, and Daniel, they have been playing a long time together. I used to hear them play together, actually, when I was still a student in Boston. So I um, was very happy when I could start making music together with them, and they are uh, all very open-minded musicians. They have their own projects, their own bands, and they also play with me. They have interest in many different kinds of music all through the big umbrella called jazz, all through improvisation and interaction, but all, a lot of world music incorporation and a lot of, you know, daring of whatever they're in the mood for. So I love playing with them. Music goes, really goes anywhere. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, it seems to be a very uh, simpatico um, a rapport that you have with um, with your uh, bandmates and the uh, the world music um, uh, element in your music, it's hard to describe it uh, simply. Um, it seems to be uh, something that evolves very organically in in your music, and I wonder if there's um, a kind of uh, new world music fusion that uh, that you're uh, conceiving of. Well, I'm, I it's hard for me to. I don't think I'm conceiving anything new, but I think this, uh, you know, as 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 we all have have access to so many different kinds of music when you one click on, on YouTube and on iTunes and you get to do, hear sounds you never heard before then people get more choices and more ingredients to throw into their own soup so it's just certain combination that that I think I, I, I make that maybe is not new maybe just different than someone else's maybe someone else will have a little more salt or pepper. <laughs> well, a lot of your salt and pepper seems to be drawn from the Brazilian um, uh, tradition. I love uh, Brazil. Uh -huh. And where, where did that um, uh, exposure begin in your life? Where, where did that uh, appreciation begin? It all started with one um, beer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I lived in Boston. I started to play with Brazilian people in Boston. Um, there's a big Brazilian community there. Um, I didn't know about that. And um, I started to play Brazilian jazz, basically taking some of, of Brazil's more popular songs, but not necessarily bossa nova, more songs like by, by composers like Toninho Horta, Edu Lobo, Milton Nascimento, uh, more of the, the greatest songwriters uh, of Brazil, and playing them instrumentally now, the forms of those songs. 
they're not as easy as, as some of the American songbook, the traditional jazz AABA forms. Mm-hmm. They are a little, uh, a little more complex. But it's been a great challenge. I fell in love with, with the music. I fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the culture. I it was around the World Cup in 98. I hung out a lot with Brazilians. And in 2000, I went for the first time to Brazil, and my life was never the same. <laughs> ah, that's amazing. Uh, we are aware that uh, Eastern Massachusetts has um, has large Brazilian communities around Boston and Framingham. And uh, did that connection uh, get fostered right at Berkeley, or was it more uh, out in the streets? It, it were students that that go that went they went to Berkeley. I met them. We we established a, a, a band, and we were playing weekly. And a lot of people from the area used to used to come by and, mm-hmm. and hang out. So mm-hmm. I guess it's a combination. Well, um, I'd like to listen to uh, another recording or two. And um, uh, first off, to hear Louis Armstrong strutting with some barbecue. And of course, we're thinking about that because um, on your recording Noir, you make a beautiful uh, medley of um, Samba de Afu and, um, and strutting with some barbecue. And before we hear the Louis Armstrong, could you just talk for a moment about what brought that uh, <laughs> Uh, amazing combination of songs and cultures together. Well, it all happened by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing in the in the East Village in a in a bar, and I asked the band to play Samba Diofeo. And by the time we ended the tune, I realized we we're playing Strutting with some barbecue. So, and then I realized, okay, actually, there are some similarities between the tunes. And when we were recording. Um, Noir, the album, which has uh, the Enzik Orchestra in it, which is a modified big band. It's a, it's a big band with three cellos and guitar. There's no piano in it. So it's, I thought, let's try to make an arrangement um, of, of those two songs. Since you have a large ensemble, it's kind of more interesting to really make an arrangement, an official arrangement. So I asked Odette Levary, which is a brilliant arranger, to, to combine them, and he did it marvelously. Mm-hmm. Well, before we hear a little bit of that, let's hear the Louis Armstrong original of Strutton with Some Barbecue. <laughs> There's Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five with the um, first recording made of Strutton with some barbecue, a tune written by um, uh, Louis's wife, uh, Lil Harden Armstrong. And I'm curious, Anat, where you're describing this as something that happened kind of spontaneously in the East Village, a jam session type of setting. How did you know the tune? Well, I love Louis Armstrong. I, I have been... Recently, I realized that I think probably some of the first jazz I've ever listened to was Louis Armstrong, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, or Louis Armstrong with, on his own with the Hot Fives at Sevens. I don't know how it happened that, you know, a 
a 14-year-old girl from Tel Aviv end up, you know, going with her record record player and, and, and listening to Louis Armstrong. But I did, and, and I'm very happy I did because Louis Armstrong, again, we're talking about spirit. He's just one of the best performers I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I didn't see him live. I've seen obviously on tapes. Um, but uh, the spirit, the, the kindness, he was just a person that, you know, would never judge anybody until they prove him wrong and was very generous and very loving. And the music that he played just shared so much love that I'm so grateful that that's some of the first jazz I heard because it definitely attracted me to continue and pursuing a jazz career. Now, among, um, uh, let's say, your peers, uh, among musicians, do you find a similar appreciation for Armstrong? With, you know, I get to play a lot of, um, I, I play with people that, that dedicate um, most of their life to the music of, of, of New Orleans and Louis Armstrong. So, yeah, I think every musician appreciates and loves Louis Armstrong. There's nothing, what's not to like, really. Um, of course, choosing to play the style is, is just a matter of choice. Some people choose to dedicate their life to, to study it and to play it. Some people want to play music from a different era. So that's just a matter of preference. But I think everybody appreciates and loves Louis, Louis Armstrong. Well, you brought together music here by two uh, Louises, Louis Bonfa and uh, hmm. Louis Armstrong, with this uh, medley that we'll now hear um, uh, a little sampling of from Anat Cohen and hear uh, the medley of Samba de Afeu and Strutton with some barbecue. Cohen with um, uh, Samba de Afeu and Strutton with some barbecue from the um, Anzac Records recording called Noir Notes. Is that your soprano saxophone there? That's, again, my soprano saxophone. That's your soprano saxophone. Beautiful. We have loved this record, played it a great deal, and um, just uh, find that uh, medley uh, so inspiring, bringing together those two cultures um, in that uh, arrangement, Odette Levery yes. was the arranger. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, clarinet, first instrument. Uh, clarinet models. Uh, who did you? Uh, uh, who are the clarinet players um, that uh, inspired you? Well, obviously, as, as, a, as a as a beginner 
Benny Goodman was one of the of the main main guys but by the time I got into jazz officially I picked up the tenor saxophone I wasn't listening to any clarinet players I just I started to listen to tenor players I fell in love with Dexter Gordon with Sonny Rollins John Coltrane and the clarinet was left behind for a while uh-huh but you were motivated to pick it back up again I was right. motivated to pick it uh, to pick it up again yes um, I was um, just uh, just a few years ago maybe five years ago or maybe actually more by now but I slowly picked it up uh, playing getting inside the Brazilian um, genre called choro chorro the choro music since it's uh, it's beautiful music it can be very virtuosic it can be very emotional I, I found uh, a style that the clarinet actually fits in and nobody you know protest when I tried to play it like mm-hmm. unlike some people when you you want to bring clarinet to jazz at the time when clarinet was a little bit out of fashion and um, and I picked it up uh, I picked the clarinet up again I, it was a big challenge to get the technique again but through choro music I I I got it back. Through Shoro music, yes, and that beautiful record you've made of uh, Shoro music uh, in the last year or so. Um, uh, there seems to be a little renaissance of uh, clarinets and jazz. Um, more and more people between Don Byron and Ken Peplowski and your work and others um, were certainly hearing the instrument um, a little more consistently in recent years, uh, but did you find the tenor saxophone itself, you mentioned Dexter Gordon and Sonny Rollins, do you find the tenor a much more sort of representative sound uh, of jazz? Well, at the time, yes, because at the time I concentrated in more straight-ahead jazz and, you know, music from from the 60s, or, you know, around there. So, yeah, definitely the tenor sax was very, very powerful in, in, in those times. And the specific voices of, of Dexter and, and Coltrane, I mean, this is, their voices are so strong and, and so influent, influencing that, of course, like, they kind of, they drew me in. So I wasn't thinking about it as necessarily just the instrument. It was just very powerful mm-hmm. source of mm-hmm. energy. And how do you find the clarinet? Um, uh, there's less resistance the clarinet in the jazz uh, idiom uh, today. Well, I I don't notice the resistance an- anymore mm-hmm. because I I realize that I can play the clarinet and it doesn't have to fit a style or an era. I can play the clarinet and and use it as an extension of my. Musicality. I can use play the clarinet and use it as part of my personality in whatever music I can. F- I I I feel that it fits as long as physically I can play it and there you can hear it. I, then it fits. And of course, when I make my shows, then then I will balance it with certain styles, and I would feel that certain songs I. I want to play saxophone on and other songs I want to play clarinet but it stopped being associated in my mind with just sw- the swing era it or just New Orleans music it it just became an instrument that can express much more than that and very lyrical very poetic or can be very aggressive it really depends how you how much you you abuse it or not abuse it so so yeah the clarinet is definitely more dominant in my life mm-hmm. and and out there probably mm-hmm. Getting back to John Coltrane, um, uh, you have recorded uh, 
at least uh, two of John Coltrane's uh, compositions that I'm aware of, uh, After the Rain and Lonnie's Lament. Um, And I'd like to uh, uh, play a little bit of uh, Lonnie's Lament by Coltrane and just ask you beforehand what it was that... um, uh, in particular, you find in this piece of music that drew you to it, that uh, that uh, inspired you to make a recording of it yourself. Well, then, of course, like like in many cases, a melody of a song gets to me, and it just it stays. You hear it once, and and it just leaves such a strong impression that it's it becomes part of you. Lani's lament has this this um, meditating m- melody. It definitely drew me in. So I loved the song. I loved his version. And, of course, trying to record the song I, when I was making uh, my album Poetica, which I I specifically wanted to play only clarinet on, I thought it would be... I really got a kick out of the idea of playing clarinet on Lonnie's Lament because try to play, play Lonnie's Lament on tenor saxophone, not to sound like Coltrane. It's like, what's, it's, <laughs> it's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. It's, his sound is so dominant and so powerful then it's i you know to play it on clarinet was a was a real challenge and uh we used it on the on that recording i had uh, omer avital again the bass player arranged for uh, for a string quartet in addition to the jazz quartet so it was really nice to combine the roots of some where i came from the classical world you know playing clarinet with the string quartet in the intro and then take it a little bit for the spirit of Coltrane, the African spirit, the the rhythm, the the strong beat, and and kind of make an arrangement that will include the strings and the band and the jazz quartet. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear um, a little bit of Coltrane's original recording now of Lonnie's Lament. <laughs> Coltrane with Lonnie's Lament from Coltrane's recording Crescent. McCoy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, and Elvin Jones heard with Coltrane on uh, Lonnie's Lament. And uh, Anat Cohen, our guest uh, uh, here at WFCR, recorded Lonnie's Lament a couple of years ago for the um, uh, Anzic uh, Records release called Poetica. And Anat, you mentioned um, uh, that you played clarinet, that that was um, almost a more obvious uh, choice. Uh, for performing this, but um, before we hear a little taste of your recording of it, um, did you conceive of this as a kind of clarinet with string quartet uh, um, idea? Where did that uh, come from specifically? 
Well, it was almost a coincidence when I mentioned to Omer Avital that I want to do an album where I play only clarinet. He said, you know, I was thinking of writing for clarinet and string quartet. I said, excellent idea. Let's combine what you want to do and I want to do. And I came up with a list of songs and we talked about it. And Lonnie's Lament was one of it. So here comes Omer's arrangements for the string quartet and the band. Very nice. Anat Cohen, Lonnie's Lament. That's Annette Cohen, our guest uh, on clarinet, playing John Coltrane's Lonnie's Lament, arranged by uh, Omar Avital, the bassist. I uh, uh, heard playing Arco, bowing uh, the bass on that arrangement. And uh, Omar is um, a longtime colleague and collaborator. It's kind of interesting. He was actually more of a longtime colleague and collaborator with my older brother, Yuval, when I was way before I played any jazz i used to go hear yuval and omer play in tel aviv you know all charlie parker music they all were very very inside bebop and uh, i knew him he went to the same high school that i went to just a few years he's a little older than me so i've known him for many years but finally we got to collaborate on poetica mm-hmm. um well, uh, speaking of Tel Aviv, Israel, you are here this week as an artist in residence at UMass. You've been at the university. You've been at Greenfield Community College. Uh, were Were you exposed to similar sort of artists in residence in Israel in your, say, high school years? I cannot say I remember that I was. Um, no. There was not really much uh, exchange with other programs. I don't remember any specific artist that maybe it's just my bad memory, but I don't remember any specific artist that came and, and talked to us. But I do remember uh, there was only one jazz festival every year in Eilat, in the southest point of Israel. Um, and I remember seeing Joe Henderson for the first time ever, and mm-hmm. I didn't even know who he was. And wow. <laughs> who else was on that festival that drew you there? Well, I don't remember who who else. It was just it was a thing, you know. You, we we like jazz, and you just 
go to Eilat for the festival. It was a whole operation because Eilat is a whole five hours from Tel Aviv, which is like the most you can mm-hmm. go anywhere <laughs> in Israel from Tel Aviv. So, sure. yeah. <laughs> you know, it yeah. was a big, uh, big deal to go there. Uh-huh. So you heard Joe Henderson, the great Joe Henderson. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. What a musician. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, bebop, your brother was playing bebop in Tel Aviv. Now, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get a little more sense of like what the scene was like on the ground because um, I'm really impressed that in recent years, and you're certainly um, uh, representative of, of this, but more and more um, Israeli jazz musicians making uh, an impact on the, uh, on the U.S. scene, their recordings coming in and just knocking me out. It's uh, it is interesting, right? I mean, I people often ask me, what is it about Israel that all these musicians, jazz musicians, coming out of? I mean, there are actually a lot of great classical musicians coming out um, as well, and they there there have been for for a while. But I feel in the last few years, definitely the presence of the of the Israeli people in 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 New York and in other places has been growing. Um, I forgot to mention on on my album there's uh, one of those young people Gilad Axelman a fantastic guitar player that also already has a couple of albums out and uh is been playing around and getting a name out for himself and him and and many other musicians I think again a generation that went to study abroad came back and is bringing up a whole new generation it's already been maybe I mean, many students that are coming out and they all have this dream, oh, I want to go to New York and live in Harlem and be a jazz musician. Some of them end up living in Queens and Brooklyn, <laughs> but but some of them actually really have this dream of going to Harlem because mm-hmm. they love jazz from the 60s and they really want to go for the whole experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I wonder if, if you know, living in an in intense place like Israel where you're exposed to... Um, you cannot escape reality. Reality is in your face daily. Every hour you'll hear on the, nu- the news goes right on the hour and you'll hear whatever happens, whatever updates, you hear it again and again everywhere. People always talk about politics and about the situation. So some, somewhat, I wonder if, if jazz is just a way to, to express yourself and, and it, it gives people the opportunity to really bring what they have inside in, in a feel free to to just express themselves and maybe that's why I attract what attracts all those young musicians about about jazz to go and play it other th- otherwise I really don't know how come <laughs> all those young jazz musicians coming out of Israel I can I have no explanation hmm. I remember Israeli friends you know back when I was in college were uh, continually just sort of uh, amazed at this American uh, uh, music that there was not the exposure to it back home at that time that right. uh, apparently there is today. Well, you know, today it's easy to, to get exposed to uh, anywhere really, any any music, almost. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely the, there is definitely a fascination about United States and jazz in Israel, definitely. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned the iPod and. Um, um, uh, YouTube and all of that uh, earlier. How um, uh, central is that to uh, to your life and and to your access to um, uh, to the music? Um, you know, you're talking to uh, a, a man <coughs> whose exposure to this was through um, uh, you know the constant quest 
for vinyl. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it, it always involved a schlep somewhere or other to pick it up and to right. search it out and to discover oftentimes it was just unavailable, out of print, all of that. And, and it seems as though everything is kind of at our fingertips today. It, it is. Sometimes, you know, if you, if, you're not, if you didn't program your mind that it is so, so close to you, then you forget sometimes. But, you know, when I remember to say, oh, I heard about this musician or here's a musician, I suddenly you realize, wait, I never saw this person playing. And then you just put the name in, on YouTube and you just, you know, suddenly you see everybody alive. They're there. They're just performing and, and with close-ups. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I think, you know, younger people today, they, they don't even realize how easy it is for them to get ex- access to all this information, you know. So... It, it's becoming more and more dominant in our lives. And, you know, when musicians get together and when you're on the road, you end up being in, you know, some one of the people's hotel room or in the lobby, someone puts the computer and everybody just start to, you know, choose YouTube, favorite YouTube clips and you just hang out, you make a YouTube party. And, <laughs> and, and it's becoming more and more, it's a, it's a great educational hang. So, yeah, it's dominant. Well, I, I seem to notice too that the, uh, the, uh the direct or, or the more direct connection to the music through the visual, uh, the film, the video, as well as, um, uh, you know, the oral uh, access to a recording seems to be um, uh, influencing a much more sophisticated level of syntheses of different cultural idioms in, uh, in the music. And yours, again, I think is a, a really a brilliant example of that, of drawing from, uh, from your own tradition, from, from the Brazilian, from the American idioms, uh, to fashion something really quite compelling. Well, yeah, I guess finding our own combinations. It's uh, find what's what's compelling to us and what might be compelling to others. It's a, it's a mystery and and it's it's a constant quest. Mm-hmm. Well, um, John Coltrane's music. Uh, we've uh, heard Lonnie's lament and um, on uh, 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 notes from the village. Your most recent recording you play uh, after the rain. Um, do you have anything to tell us about uh, what drew you to this uh, particular uh, Coltrane piece? Well, I uh, actually remember listening to it one day after after the rain. In in I was sitting in 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 Boston and we were rehearsing and I was just sitting on the the doorstep looking outside and the sun came out and you saw the the rain was just evaporating from the <laughs> from the earth and the steam was going up and the sun was coming out and and I li- was listening to the music, and I fell in love with the song. So the song, this vision has stayed with me ever since when I arranged it with Jason Linder for the album. Mm. Well, let's hear John Coltrane's original recording now of After the Rain. <laughs> Thank you. 
John Coltrane's After the Rain. We're uh, talking with Anat Cohen here at uh, WFCR. She's appearing at the University of Massachusetts on Friday, November 7th in the Jazz All the Mode series at UMass this fall, and it's a pleasure to have her company this afternoon um, as she's here as an artist in residence at the University of Massachusetts this week, the Billy Taylor artist in residence. Um, so, uh, After the Rain by Train is uh, something that you play on Notes from the Village on your new record um, uh, there on clarinet, like right. uh, Lonnie's Lament on Poetica. And um, we haven't had a chance to hear your uh, tenor saxophone playing yet, uh, Anant. I know that's kind of what captured my um, um, appreciation fast when I heard you playing Jerry Mulligan's as Catch Can mm -hmm. on your first uh, record, Place and Time. That was a very impressive debut, I must say. Thank um, you. Um, so, it feels um, so long ago. <laughs> I bet it does. Um, uh, and, and before we hear you playing um, uh, tenor on your new record, uh, I'd like to ask you just of the experience that you've had, it seems as though there's a kind of acceleration of um, of career, of recorded output, of of touring, of uh, media exposure, all of that. How, do, how does all of this feel uh, at this uh, point in your life? To, you know, it's to about time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of, you know, Keith Jarrett once, once said, um, I remember a teacher in Israel told me that Keith Jarrett said, I went through a long way for an overnight success. <laughs> sure. So, you know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, so everybody is, 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 we're at it every day, all day, 24-7. We're playing, we're being side people on many shows. We travel with a bunch of bands. We We do everything and... You know, we get to do our own, we do a lot of different shows, and then we get the little better gigs and better gigs, and, you know, you have you find a record label that is willing to put out your records. In that case, Enzik Records is my own label, so it's it's becoming even easier. Um, but, um, but, you know, I feel very fortunate, and I, I want to keep going at it and, and keep keep playing, keep performing, keep traveling, keep writing music, get new ideas, maybe get more instruments than, you know, so I can play. It's, there's so, so much to learn in so little time. <laughs> and uh, uh, Anzik, uh, you mentioned, is your label, so you're involved in this from the entrepreneurial um, side of things as well. Uh, oh, yeah, it's fun to be a business person. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting to, you know, Anzik Records is, is a relatively... A uh, new label. It, it only we only launched the label last year in the beginning of two thousand and seven. Um, but I think the, the the most important what I'm learning and what the other Enzik artists so far have been learning is that the artist has to be involved with what is going on constantly. It's as in as on the business side of things, because usually artists that just want to do the music and that's it and have someone else do all the rest of the work. But then when someone else does the rest of the work, the artist is always get surprised. They don't know the numbers. They know what's what's going on. And in Enzik Records, artists are involved. They know all the time what's going on, How what will be the cost of making a CD and what will be the cost of printing, what will be the cost of the PR, how much they're willing to spend for each musician that they're going to record because eventually when they need to make the money back, you know, they're going to know exactly what were the costs. And, you know, I just couldn't stand it that artists were in the dark from in any other situation that I've been so far. So I'm so grateful to have a 
clear view with Anzic Records of mm-hmm. what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, your label has uh, recorded a real nice date on uh, a friend of ours from West Hartford, Joel Fram. Oh, yes. And you and Joel are part of a collective called Waverly Seven. Correct. Uh, 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 how did that originate, and uh, and uh, the repertoire for that band is uh, fascinating. I love it. Uh, <laughs> uh, where did Waverly Seven uh, begin? Well, Waverly Seven began in, in, in the the passion of of the the producer of the album uh, that uh, wanted to cap- capture the entertaining part. You know, so so many times jazz musicians play and they forget about the audience, and the audience ends up forgetting about them, and really capture. Um, well, it came from the idea, came from the idea of uh, recording all Bobby Darin songs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Bobby Darin was an incredible performer, entertainer. So we wanted to capture the the spirit of entertainment, the spirit of swing, the, the jazz tunes that he performed, not necessarily wrote, but all all the songs. It's a double album that he performed, and we chose a bunch of uh, New York musicians that are band leaders that maybe with their band they play music that is completely different than the traditional swing and what happens when you take all these people together and you capture the energy and you make them talk uh, speak in a common language which is swing and Joel Fromm is one of these people um, J- Jason Lindner, Avishai Cohen uh, Manuel Valera is on the record um, Daniel Friedman, Barack Mori all really great musicians and Joel Fromm is definitely one of my idols um, I was so happy to be on the same record date with him, and I'm so happy to be able to go out and hear him play. He is such a great musician. I urge you all to check out Joel Fromm. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, so uh, before we hear this final uh, selection, I just want to uh, note one other thing, which is, uh, you know, it may be a little bit heretical in certain jazz circles, but to be talking about entertainment mm. and thinking about the audience and... Um, you know, such uh, old-fashioned uh, uh, notions as those. Uh, where's that coming from? <laughs> Retro. <laughs> We're back to the source. <laughs> I well, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean entertaining as far as okay, you got to make the audience dance and you got to compromise on the music. I'm talking about keep playing high-level music and make the music you want to play, but remembering that you are there for the audience and the audience is there for you. So there is a relationship, and uh, you know it's it's a choice. Some people just want to play the music they want to play, and it's okay. It, you know the audience can accept it and they close their eyes and pretend whatever they want to pretend if the music is high enough. But you know I I, I think it's important to acknowledge the audience and their existence in the same room. <laughs> so there comes the entertainment part. Now, in your uh, uh, performances, uh, there's a kind of uh, energy, a vivaciousness that uh, that um, that is part of uh, your stage your presence, and it and it seems to be very uh, uh, organic, very uh, genuine uh, uh, response and movement with the music. But uh, again, uh, you know, jazz is a kind of um, uh, this sort of mythical wooden figure on a stage, making uh, appearing very impassive. Uh, uh, generally, and you've brought a very different type of energy and style to uh, to the bandstand. Uh, any particular models for that for you? Mm, you know, I I I I'm, don't have any specific model that I that I'm going after. I mean, I just learned to be free on stage when I used to play. Uh, when I lived in in Boston, I played with uh, Alex Alvear, a fantastic musician. He has a band called Mango Blue, and I used to play with his band, and it's a Latin band. And I remember 
you know, picking up the steps, the Latin steps, and being on stage. And as a horn section, I was actually with Miguel Zanon in the horn section. Mm-hmm. And then when we don't play, the music is so grooving that what are you going to do? But <laughs> there's nothing else to do but just be there and dance. So I remember I was very self-conscious at the beginning. Wait a second, I'm just standing in front of an audience and I'm dancing? I'm a musician, I'm not supposed to dance. But then I learned to be very comfortable with just being myself. And if the music is one is going to make me dance, then I'm going to move. And if it's going to make me jump, I'm going to jump. And, and if it's going to you know, make me want to stand still and concentrate and that's what I'm going to do so I really f- go after what I feel and I don't think about it as what is the correct way to be on stage mm-hmm. well we look forward to seeing you tomorrow night and thanks again for joining us this afternoon and um, before we go uh, let's hear a selection from Notes from the Village that we heard Washington Square Park from earlier now this is uh, Lullaby for the Naive Ones yeah. Well. Uh, tell us of the title, <laughs> and uh, and this is your tenor saxophone feature on this uh, new record. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the, the, obviously the title came after the song was written. Um, the beginning of the song is more of a lullaby spirit. It's very simple, like a children's song, and then it opens up to something that develops to something pretty intense. So, you know, it's almost like playing a lullaby, but, you know, either don't be naive because... Life has more in more to it than what it seems, or you know, I it's you can interpret it the way you want. <laughs> well, thank you, Anad Cohen, for being with us today. And here is Lullaby for the Naive Ones. <laughs> 